This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Research. Knowledge sharing on financial research. Welcome to this Amundi Research podcast, where we take an in-depth look at macro and market themes. I'm Swaha Patanaik, and today I'll be speaking with Mahmoud Pradhan, Head of Global Macroeconomics at the Amundi Institute. Mahmoud, welcome to the podcast and your first one since joining the Institute recently. Thank you. Thank you, Swaha. Delighted to be here. Today, we're going to be discussing the conflict in Ukraine. One year after Russia's invasion of the country, the scale of the human tragedy and devastation that's already been seen is first and foremost in all of our minds. They've also been geopolitical, macroeconomic and market ramifications for the rest of the world, particularly Europe. Mahmoud, what's been the most surprising aspect to you when you look back over what's unfolded over the past year? Uh, I'd say, you know, Europe was at the epicenter of this crisis. At the start of the conflict, we all worried about energy supplies, the exodus from Ukraine of millions of people which mounted through the year. What's been most surprising is how Europe has managed to wean itself off its dependence on Russian energy, Russian gas and so on, and build new storage facilities for liquid natural gas and source liquid natural gas from many other parts of the world. At the start of the conflict, the first few months after that, we all thought that Europe could face rationing, and it has actually avoided that. Of course, it's been an economic hit. It's been a setback for growth, but that's been the most surprising, that it's managed to reduce its dependence and keep the economies going. I'd say that that's... Uh... Secondly, we all understood that this was a huge energy supply shock which would have ramifications for all these economies. We've seen the high inflation and we are now past the peak of that high inflation. Central banks, of course, had to react. Fiscal policy buffers had to be put in place to protect the low-income people and this time it was more than low-income people. These Energy bills were skyrocketing. It affects everyone, citizens and industry. The fiscal buffers were put in place. And secondly, the monetary policy tightening that was inevitable. We are now looking at a picture where we have gone past the peak of high inflation. So I'd say that's been a positive surprise in the context of a terrible tragedy, as you mentioned. Thank you, Mahmoud. Well, there are several scenarios of how the war could play out from here. A prolonged conflict or a stalemate that drags on and on. A direct escalation between Russia and the West or a sudden win for either side. What are some of the things that you worry about um, which might happen to the global economy in perhaps the worst case scenario? One indication of what this war symbolizes to me is the, the possibility that the global fragmentation, or some people call it deglobalization, 
could be with us for some time and we may, it may get worse. We may get less global economic integration because of divisions that this war has brought about among in, in the global economy, among countries around the world. This deglobalization, which kind of has manifested itself in many, many more trade restrictions or frictions standing in the wheels of global trade. That's kind of the worst case scenario. And this could go on beyond the end of this current conflict. I think it could go, it, it, it could be the, the sort of more permanent damage. And it adds to the trends that we have seen in recent years about more trade fictions, uh, less integration. And, you know, let's, let, we should not forget the benefits of globalization over many, many years. The benefits have been a convergence of per capita incomes around the world, living standards, if you will. And to put that in reverse is a big negative of any kind of worst case scenario, as you put it. Of course, there are pockets of the world, the different parts of the world will be impacted differently. Uh, Secondly, and again, coming back to what's at stake here, the worst case scenario could be also that the world does not have the same level of energy security, supplies of energy security that we have seen before. And that could give us both a secular lower economic performance, but also periodic bouts of volatility in the price of energy. And that's been, when I look back at the last year, that's been the, the key headache for policymakers, how to navigate that volatility. And I presume for businesses as well, when you're trying to plan ahead, because one of the presumptions is if there is more sand in the wheels of the global economy or more volatility, the cost of production, just things become more expensive because the resiliency of supply is becoming uppermost as yeah. it was during the pandemic and becomes ever more important. Is that a concern, do you think, about the underlying structural price pressures that we might see in the years ahead? Yes. An example of that would be how we think about the competitiveness of certain European industries, Europe's competitiveness vis-a-vis other parts of the world. I think this kind of scenario we're looking at now tells us that both in terms of reducing dependence on Russia, getting energy at a, at a higher price from elsewhere in the world, competing in a global market for LNG, for example, will raise the cost to European industry, the cost of energy to European industry. And it makes Europe less competitive vis-a-vis other parts of the world, for example, the U.S., that's the first point, and that's a structural change that will affect the pattern of production. Previously, when we've seen events like this, and I use uh, in my mind, I use an example of Germany stopping the use of nuclear power back in 2009-10 after the Japan the nuclear accident. That raised the costs of energy to German industry. We subsequently saw a move away of German industrial production cars, for example, away from Germany to other parts of the world where energy was cheaper. This structural increase in the cost of energy could trigger a similar type of move away. We've seen some aspects of this already in the German chemical industry, German pharmaceutical industry, 
where the recovery in industrial production has not been seen, whereas other parts of German industry are recovering industrial production. Activity in these two sectors has actually stayed pretty low and subdued. But the price of energy wasn't the only thing to shoot up. And that, this links back to one of the things you were talking about earlier, um, about the cost to um, some of the poorer economies in the, uh, the, the world of deglobalization, um, losing the interlinkages that we've seen delivering, as you said, a convergence of per capita, even before those long-term sort of structural issues that you're referring to happen, we've already seen some of these emerging market low-income countries suffer a huge trade of t- t- terms of trade shock yeah. because of energy, because of food prices. How, how does this play out in your view? Yes, it's a good point. I'm glad you raised that because I've so far talked about the epicenter in Europe, but the epicenter of this is global. We should recognize that. We start from just a basic observation that what we've seen in terms of price increases, commodity, energy prices, and especially food prices go up. As you know, wheat exports from Ukraine have uh, fallen because of the conflict. These are items that have a very large weight in the typical consumer's basket in emerging market and low-income countries, much higher weight than in, say, the advanced economies. So as a result, what we've seen is a very steep increase in inflation. And the low-income and emerging market countries have not been able to use the same fiscal buffers. They don't have the fiscal space to cushion the impact of these higher price rises on their domestic uh, populations. So the hardship has been very real. Much uh, Europe has been fortunate that it has created and has fiscal space. And let's admit, Europe is a rich part of the world, so it has been able to sort of accommodate the shock. Many other countries have not been so fortunate. They have had less fiscal space. And in addition, what I mentioned earlier about Europe accessing new sources of liquid natural gas away from Russia. Europe is competing in the global market, and as are these other countries, the low-income emerging market countries, and they have not been able to buy it. They've not been able to afford it. So they both have a balance of payments problem to pay for higher gas. And in fact, in practice, what we've seen is they've had energy has been rationed. We've seen many countries with their power cuts, blackouts, So the disruption to life, to economic activities has been much more severe. Together with the pandemic and this shock coming soon after, what you observe in the emerging market low-income country group is a very high number of countries who are now seen as being in debt distress that will need official assistance and we're likely to see more debt restructurings, debt of external creditors, both official and private creditors being rescheduled or restructured. We're already seeing examples of that. I think this trend will continue. So in that sense, well, this shock is not not over. That's to stay with us for a while. Right. Let me go back to something we started the conversation with, which you mentioned sort of one of the things that had surprised, surprised you perhaps pleasantly, um, over the past year is the 
peak of inflation, um, how prices have started to come down. And I think you expect inflation to retreat fairly rapidly from the multi-decade highs that were scaled following the war and perhaps more quickly than many in the market anticipate. You also have to see central banks continuing perhaps to miss their targets. Is there going to be any sort of lasting scarring, if you like, uh, in central bank speak on how monetary policymakers deal with inflation price pressures in the coming years and how that may change relative to the past decade? Yes, I think the past decade was different because we the world was characterized by low inflation, low interest rates, and central banks were struggling, in fact, to raise inflation and therefore got into a wide range of what we call unconventional policies, QE or asset purchases being the center of that effort. Going forward, I think what we're going to see is, I started with energy supply, energy security. We'd like to see more volatility in energy and commodity prices. Deglobalization or fragmentation reduces the availability of low-cost goods from low-wage producing, uh, low-wage countries. So that's a risk. And then what do central banks face, therefore? I think they're going to have to navigate periodic bouts of volatility. And in their operational framework, I see them having to reduce the extent and the length of forward guidance they can provide to markets on where their policy rates or policy stance will be and being a little bit more putting a little bit more emphasis on being data dependent policy being more active based on developments on inflation so they as they, they have to watch the data and i would expect policy to be not as stable as we saw in the last decade so the markets are going to have to cope with an environment where central banks are a more active more data dependent and the underlying source of that volatility will be the data i mean inflation could be more volatile you start you mentioned that my view is that central banks have been reasonably aggressive this has been the most aggressive tightening cycle we've seen in recent history and they will overcome this the current high inflation as i said it's already on a downward trend over time they will overcome it but as i look forward i see policy as less guided by forward guidance central banks will not have the luxury of providing a lot of forward guidance and will be more data dependent so that's a change in the in the policy environment that we will all face and markets will face what central banks have to deal with just there'll just be less assurance we have about where policy is likely to be in the future Sounds like volatility across the board then for markets, uh, inflation, yes. uh, energy, everything. Um, Mahmoud, I could happily continue this conversation for a good yes. long while, but we're out of time and unfortunately. I hope your debut on Monday podcast will be followed by many more. And I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to us today. We hope you will join us again soon too. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon 
as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.